uh, I want us to be encouraged today that despite the things we see around us, God is still in control. He is not, his hands have not left the wheel. Um, and the amazing thing is because our God is all powerful and uh, so glorious, our hope and our trust today is he is going to finish the story. And so all 2019, we've looked at one big story, God's story from the very beginning of human history to we finally get to heaven today. Amen. Uh, we're not literally going. It's not like there's a bus outside waiting to take us. Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, but if we place our trust in the sovereign God who sits on the throne, and we seek to fit our story, whatever that is, into his one big story. It's going to be a great thing, and he's going to get us home. And he's going to bring it all to completion. And everything's going to work out, and everything's going to align with God. And so uh, I hope that we're encouraged and that we're challenged in our lives as we see God's one big story that day by day we say, God, fit my story into your story so that at the end of our story there is praise and glory to God who uh, wants to write our story within his story. Amen? Um, I told you earlier that... Uh, I just finished a book. I guess the big title is HQ. Um, it's written by Ray Johnston, who's a pastor, but a speaker, and he does other things. Um, Ray Johnston's contention in the book, and it's called HQ, but it's called the Hope Quotient. Ray Johnston's contention in the book, the essence of this book, is that the single most important determining factor for success in life is not IQ, which is intelligence quotient. I can't even say it, so you know I, I like rank way down there. And I'm going to mispronounce some words in Revelation 21 this morning, so you're going to know, okay, well, yeah, uh, not high on the IQ scale. Uh, you know, in by and large, IQ is determined by genetics. We're kind of born with it, I think, mainly. I don't know that, actually. Just said it. Um, you know, something also developed in the 1990s called EQ. Any of y'all ever heard of EQ? So you have IQ. Uh, nobody's heard of it other than cricket in the room. EQ is emotional quotient. And that means that is your relational smartness. That's how you, uh, your ability to relate well with others. And actually, it may be a greater determining, determinant of success in life than IQ. Maybe your EQ is more important. But Ray Johnson goes beyond that. And he says, no, 
It's not IQ. It's not even EQ. It is HQ. It is your hope quotient. It is how you look at life and how, and he writes from a Christian perspective, how God wants to fill your heart and your mind with hope. He says that will make the biggest difference in your life. I tried to look for a quote that would kind of just summarize some of his thoughts and he says early on, he says this, he says, when people become more hopeful about their health, they start on the path to getting in shape. When people get hopeful about breaking bad habits, they start winning battles they hadn't, haven't won before. When people become more hopeful about their kids, they find new energy to invest in those kids. When people get hope in their marriages, they start making better decisions. When people become more hopeful about their finances, they begin to develop the patterns that lead to financial freedom. When people become more hopeful about their future, hope is the match that lights the fuse, that sends them back to school or helps them apply for a new job or helps them grow and develop. When people become more hopeful that they can actually connect with God, it fuels the kind of actions that lead them to spiritual vitality and health. The interesting thing about HQ is that if IQ is predominantly uh, genetic, and you could argue even EQ is a lot of genetics, but also learned, HQ is a choice we make we choose hope or we choose on the converse side we choose discouragement and that discouragement can bring us down the hope can lift us up well this morning as we come to the final two chapters in the bible i'm reminded of that because here it is. Our greatest source of hope is, is that at the end, God completely redeems our broken world and makes it right. If there's one thing as believers that is our source of hope, it is the fact that at the end, God will redeem this broken, messed up world and he will make all things right. All things will line up according to God's perfect plan. In Revelation 21, um, this is what John writes. Just in the first five verses, and I'm going to read more later. He says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away also there was no more sea then I John saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying behold the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people God himself will be with them and be their God 
And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. The Bible, which is the record of God's revelation to us about his story, says that at the end of the story, not only will justice be served, but redemption will be completed. God will redeem our broken, messed up world. He will reverse everything that has been messed up and is wrong with our world. And whatever struggles we, have, we think about today, uh, God is going to fix in the end. In fact, we've talked about this year in these sermons on one big story that God's story is summarized as a story of redemption. And, uh, you know, the reality is, is in the vast majority of the story that we've looked at, I think we had two sermons before everything got broken. And so all of these sermons have been in the midst of the, the broken world and God bringing about his redemption. Uh, we started in the Garden of Eden and God uh, creating a perfect place for mankind to live. But, but in Genesis chapter 3, man rebels. And the thing is, Adam and Eve made their choice and it not, not only messed up their relationship with God, but it messed up everything. I want you to understand today, the reason our world is messed up is because we and everyone who's walked this earth with us as human beings, we chose to do our own thing. And it didn't just mess up me, it messed up everything. Everything in this world is tainted by that rebellion, that, by that desire that we said, no, I would rather do it my way, I want to do that. And so for all of these centuries, God has been working the process of redemption to fix all of those things in our life, whether that is illness, whether that is death, whether that is broken relationships, whether that is the, uh, just the prevalence of evil in our world. Um, God redeems it. He made it perfect in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. We chose, and everything's been messed up all of these thousands of years, God says, at the end, I'm going to fix everything. Everything is going to be made right. It is going to be put back into alignment according to God's standards and according to his will and according to his glory. 
And so when we come to the final two chapters in the Bible, uh, we, get, we have, I, I guess, the lengthiest, the most detailed description of heaven, what that's going to be like. What does it look like when God puts everything back into alignment? What does it look like when, when God redeems everything? Isn't it amazing to think that, and we will see this in just a minute, is that, that even though we're the ones who've messed it up, it will be God who will put it back together. Here's the thing that struck me. If the one thing, and this is maybe a relatively minor point today, but for me it's been kind of the thing that's just stuck in my brain all week as I've thought about this, is that God in the beginning uh, had a perfect place. And the Garden of Eden was perfect. Everything was good. It was the perfect place for mankind to live and to live in relationship with God. And we mess it up. When God fixes it all, He doesn't just recreate the Garden of Eden again. No, it's like God takes it to the nth degree. It's like, no, it was perfect, and you people mess it up. And all this time I've been working my, my, my process, my plan of redemption. When I fix it all, I, I, I don't know. It's almost as if God says, Really, quite honestly, this is what I had in mind from the beginning. But I knew what you would do. <laughs> and I wanted you to see my glory. So, I don't know, that, that thought has just stuck in my brain. When God fixes things, He doesn't just bring them back to the way they were. He just takes them to the nth degree. And we're going to see that in Revelation 21 and 22. He doesn't bring them back to the garden. No, all of a sudden there's a description of a place. In fact, in, in the verses we've read in chapter 2, he says it's a city. We used to, Brother Melvin, we used to sing it's a city four, four square. But anyhow, I, we, I, we don't sing that anymore. But anyhow, we did sing a song on heaven this morning. City built four, four, four square. I'm sorry, I'm butchering that song. It's not a garden anymore. A garden was a place where we worked. The city will be a place where we will worship. And he describes it and he sees it. The other amazing thing about this whole description to me is that John is describing a place he has never been to and has never seen. In fact, I would make the contention today this world does not even possess the vocabulary to describe the place that God is creating. So the, the goofy thing to me is we've never been there we don't even have words to express it. The only words we have to express it are the words from this broken, messed up world. <laughs> Isn't that kind of peculiar? It's like, well, I, it, but you, the only way, I, I, it's, it's, it's a city. In fact, John says in, in verse 2, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband um, once again he uses an earthly imagery to describe he said it was like a bride now their uh, weddings were different in their day than what we do in America in our culture 
what they do is more what we see in Africa. And this is what happens in Africa. I mean, there's, David, there's some goats and cows exchanged, you know, because you've got to have the, I mean, you know, you've got two goat girls and you've got three cowgirls. I mean, I'm sorry, that was bad. That was, uh, that, re retract that. Um, you know, you've got to negotiate, you know, uh, with the father-in-law about, you know, okay, okay, well, okay, if that's what you think she's worth, then that's what we're going to do. But here's the other thing. That man, the groom, begins to prepare the home that they will live in. He is preparing a home because someday when the time is, everything is prepared, he's going to go and get her and he's going to bring her to that house. And I think in ancient culture and like they do in Africa, they're going to have a wedding ceremony and they're going to come to live in that house. The other thing is, I know this happens in Africa, that groom is going to send money and that, that girl is going to get all decked out. She's going to be looking good that day. It's her wedding day. She's going to be all decked out in white. And all of those preparations are going. And he's preparing a house, but he's also sending the supplies, the money that is necessary for her to be decked out in all of her glory. Do you get it? When John describes heaven, he said it's like that day when, all, when the home has been prepared. I don't need to remind you of John 14 where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and get you to bring you to that place so that where I am, there you will be also. Jesus went to prepare a place. In fact, the heaven that is described here is not the heaven of today. It is the place that is being prepared. There is a place now. I think I described Sunday before last as heaven one. There's going to be heaven 2.0, all right, or whatever, whatever it is. Um, God has prepared a place. It's a glorious place. We're going to read it about it here in just a second. Uh, but here's the other, the beautiful thing of this is the bride is getting ready. And in these verses and in the verses we'll read, the bride is the church. And someday, the bride will be made perfect. We'll be all in white. Everything will be perfect. In fact, in Revelation 19, 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8, it describes the second coming as the marriage supper of the Lamb and that the bride has been made ready and is in white, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. Jesus will make us just perfect that day so that we can live with Him. And so there will be a new home the bride will be all in white, which symbolizes the church being purified. And here's the thing, and I want you to get this. The glory of the place is not just about the place. The glory of the place is also about the people. And I, I don't even know that our brains can uh, wrap ourselves around it, but part of the glory of God in that day will not just be the streets of gold and I don't know, streams that flow with crystal waters, whatever we're going to read here in just a minute. The glory of that place is not just the place, but it is the people, the redeemed, 
who walked the streets, that God said, I redeemed that one, and I redeemed that one. That one was a sinner. Well, we were all sinners, and they're decked in white now. They're in the righteous robes of the, of, that were made perfectly right by the blood of Jesus Christ. The glory of that place, the glory will be the glory of a father-in-law or of a father and his daughter on her wedding day. Everything is perfect. And the glory of that place, yes, will be the surroundings. But the surroundings are just surroundings. It's just a place. And heaven is a place. But the place would be diminished if it weren't for the people. And the redeemed will be there to the glory of God. It will be a testament to the power of his redemption that I could take that life and that life and that life and that life and I could redeem them so that they were perfectly fit for the place that I prepared for them. Uh, and maybe the greatest significance of the place is not just that God will be there, but we will be with them, with him in a, in a union personal union that we've never known before and so he says in verse 3 I heard a loud voice from heaven saying behold the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people God himself will be with them and will be their God the interesting thing in verse 4 when when John begins to describe what heaven is like invariably he says well the main thing about heaven is it won't be like this <laughs> It's kind of interesting. He, he, you know, it's like, I don't have words to describe that, but what I want you to know is I'm going to reverse everything, so heaven is going to be what earth is not. Whatever earth was, heaven will not be. And so he begins to describe it basically from the negative perspective, and he says in verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. What is this world? It's about tears, it's about death, it's about sorrow, it's about crying, it's about pain. All of it's done. What is heaven? It's the opposite of earth. Whatever your experience was here, God's going to take care of all that. And so he's, he says, I make all things new. Um, he completely reverses this world. Oh, y'all, I've rambled too long. Verse 6, let's read this. i got something to say at the end. i got to get to. So y'all have to listen closely. So he goes on in verse 6. I'm just going to read this. Maybe make a few comments. Maybe. Verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, which is the church the Lamb's wife. It's not just the church, but it's the place that he's prepared for the bride. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And as I read this description, the one thing I would say to you, heaven is a reflection of the glory of God. The garden was the perfect place for man to dwell in relationship with God. Heaven is the perfect place for God to dwell with man in relationship with him. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So that's the Old Testament on the gates, the 12 patriarchs. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, New Testament. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And the city was laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth, and it, he measured the city with, a, with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Um, its length, breadth, and height are equal. It's actually a cube, um, 12,000 furlongs, 1,400 miles, 1,400 miles wide, long, high. Hmm. Whatever you make of that. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubics, I think it's about 200 feet, I think. According to the measure of a man that is of an angel, the construction of its wall was of jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was of jasper and the second sapphire and the second uh, chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, uh, the sixth sart sardius, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth uh, chryso uh, praise the 11th jacinth uh, the 12th amethyst 12 gates were 12 pearls each gate individual gate was of one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were in its temple the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it and the lamb is its light and the nations of those who were saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it its gates shall not be shut at all by day there shall be no night there and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on the either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. It will be a place of activity and worship and um, 
Then it says in verse 4, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. Do you remember the scripture in 1 Corinthians 13 where it says, for now we look as through a glass dimly, but then we shall see face to face. So all throughout the Bible, no one was able to look at God or you would die. But heaven will be the place where we will look at God face to face. It will be the perfect place. And then finally in verse 5, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Um, the thing that strikes me about that description is that that description was written by John in 95 A.D. You notice I don't have any sheets for you today because it's like the timeline. It's like, what? Whoop! Eternity? I don't know. What? What do you want me to put on a timeline? It's heaven. Okay, it's going to... Mm, the sheet's not white enough. If I had to put a date of when this was written, 95 A.D. And you say, why? Why does God, you know what God does in the story of redemption? He tells us the end of the story. This is the end of the story. This is how the story ends. And he writes it before the story ends. Now there have been glimpses throughout the Bible of these glimpses of heaven. But here he comes to the end and you say, why? Because God wanted us to know now how the story ends. Because it makes a difference in the way that we live now. In fact, that's my challenge to you today. Is live now with the end in mind. In the day in which John wrote this in the midst of Christians who were being persecuted and beheaded for their faith. God said, no, I want you to see as detailed a picture of what eternity will be like so that in the midst of it, you will be encouraged and you will have hope because someday in the midst of a messed up world, God says, I'm going to fix everything. And it is our faith that trusts in a God who sits on a throne that says, no, I'm going to place my trust in God. He's going to do what he said he would do. My encouragement, my hope today, whatever I pass through, is that someday this will be over. And as he says in chapter 22, verse 5, heaven will be forever. And sometimes they just double down in the Bible. They don't just say forever. They say forever and ever. Unto the ages, unto the ages. It will never end. The reason God gives us the ending of the story is so that we would be encouraged and have hope in the midst of whatever we go through. What other story have you ever heard of where you already know the ending in the midst of the, the drama and the details of that story? I'm not saying if you've seen a movie, I understand you have... You know the ending. 
But whatever, whatever situation you're going through, how do you know how it's going to end? Well, when I fit my story into God's big story, I know how it's going to end. Uh, spent a couple days in Little Rock uh, with my mother in the hospital this week. And uh, she's got some things going on, and we've got some decisions to make as a family. Uh, and the Baptist preacher sitting there with my Bible and my sermon notes and all, and we're, we're, we're working on the sermon on heaven. And uh, I'm reading a book about hope. And the thing that God said to me in the midst of that is, you know how your mama's story ends. You know how the story ends. Because when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the ending of his story becomes the ending of your story. Isn't that an incredible thing? In fact, if there were three things I could challenge you with, and I'm, I'm finished with this. How do we live now with the end in mind? You accept him and his way of salvation in your life. I'm telling you, the one that sits on the throne says, this is the way it's going to end. You may have a better idea. You may think of something else. You may think uh, it's going to end some other way. I, th I think I'm going to go with the one on the throne. It's going to end like this. The question is, what choice have you made? And have you accepted his one way of salvation through Jesus Christ? And if you have placed your faith in him, then you can secure the ending to your story also. Accept his gift of salvation. Secondly, choose the attitude of hope. The reason he tells us this is to encourage us in the midst of the messed up details of the life in which we now live. This will not always be. That will be forever and ever. And sometimes we need to step back in the midst of of the muck and the mire and we need to ask the question what does this look like from heaven's perspective I would encourage you to do that today whatever the circumstances of your life are and I believe somehow it'll look a little bit different the problem is we look at our life from this perspective and we don't look at it from heaven's perspective and I believe if we look at it from heaven's perspective we can choose the attitude of hope in the midst of whatever we're passing through. The third and final thing, how do we live now with the ending in mind, is that we adopt an action plan. If this is God's story that we've looked at all this year, then how am I going to live and am I going to live my story as my story and I'm going to do my own thing? Or am I going to choose to say, you know, if that's God's big story, then I want my story to fit into his story. And I would challenge you to develop an action plan. Think about the things that you do. 
and how you spend your time, how you spend your resources. What does that look like from heaven's perspective? And might there be a different action plan if you looked at life from heaven's perspective and if you sought to fit your story into God's story, wouldn't God have us invest whatever he has blessed us with in eternal things in the window of time that we have and the opportunities that are set before us? So if we conclude a whole year long that has taken us through all the Bible, I want you to know God's one big story. And I want you to be challenged to fit your story into his story and live it now with the ending in mind. Amen? Amen. If you would, if you would stand with me this morning. Um, today, as our music team comes to lead us, um, maybe you've never chosen to accept the gift of salvation that God provided through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I would love to talk you, with you about that. I'm going to be at the front. Uh, maybe there are opportunities in your life um, that you go, I, I need to seize those. I, I need to develop an action plan that begins to invest in eternity and not just earthly things. For some of you, it may be as simple as a commitment today. I choose joy and, and hope in the midst of the circumstances. God's on the throne. God's got this. God's going to carry out His plan. It's going to be incredible. But it comes down to a choice in my life to say, I will choose hope and I will choose joy. So whatever your decision is, the altar is open. I'm here to receive you as you come this morning. How great the chasm that may be between